0: ways that people uh, organize and do political work, but the previous decade was striking in that it sort of offered up three different forms of struggle that seem extraordinarily significant. Those three, and he, I'm thinking here largely of the, of the United States, of North America, or Turtle Island, um, those three were in chronological order, the Occupy Movement, uh, which gets going in, in 2011. Uh, The uh, no Dapple, No-Dakota Access Pipeline, also known as Standing Rock movement in the middle of the decade, and then at the end of the decade, the George Floyd uprising. Those are, I would say, the three most significant or maybe exemplary or paradigmatic—I don't want to get too uh, um, fancy—sort of— Dramatic political events uh, in North America, particularly in the United States, in the previous decade. And if you think about them, they're they're related, but they have differences. Like one is sort of a public occupation, one is a land occupation blockade, and one is you know what's loosely called a riot, although accurately referred to in this case as you know an uprising. And those three components the sort of the, the the public gathering in protest of Uh, political catastrophe and particularly the depredations of capitalism and inequality that that typify, occupy. The uh, defense of land against the depredations of the state and capitalism, which uh, sort of define uh, Standing Rock, and the antagonistic uprising against racialized, particularly uh, police violence, state violence, uh, and domination. Those three features all come together in Defend the Atlanta Forest or Stop Cop City, which has components of all of those. All three of those events I described, of course, had different and and uh, largely devastating relationships with the police. A weird thing about Occupy was that there was a sort of faction within it, which is like, the police are workers too, and we have to befriend them. And I always thought that was weird, personally. I was like, you might not know the history of police. They, they don't change sides. <laughs> um, they, they may be workers, but they're workers against work and workers, I mean, they're workers against actual workers. Um, their main job, in fact, is to just sort of enforce labor laws on people. That's one of the histories of the police. But people, in some ways, were sympathetic to the police until the pepper spray came out, and the tear gas, and the truncheons, and the extraordinary violence that was used to suppress the Occupy movement. The police presence of many, many kinds at Standing Rock was almost beyond measure and court cases continue uh, from the repression for that. And then of course, the George Floyd uprising was directly, specifically and explicitly about uh, police murder and police domination and racialized police violence. As you could imagine, Defend the Atlanta Forest, Stop Cop City, combining aspects of all of those movements, uh, it has faced uh, incredible uh, um, antagonism, hostility, danger, threat, domination, violence from the police. And that plays a terrible role in this story. We're going to talk about the story more with Kay, but the way it starts is there's a plan to build a playground for police outside of Atlanta and for and, in, in forests that, are um, environmentally cr- crucial. That are on indigenous land. That um, have s- that have served communities. That provide many many resources. And there's a plan to ins- put in its place uh, a place f- to train more police and uh, let them uh, play with weapons, practice skills, develop their capacity to destroy people's lives. And for all these reasons, uh, this project, known as Cop City, massively corporately funded by corporations in Atlanta and nationwide, there's a land occupation in the forest to stop it from happening. This is Defend the Atlanta Forest. Uh, The police repression begins immediately. In some ways, arguably to this point, it peaks with the police murder of an activist named Tort, short for Tortugita. Little Turtle, who was killed quite recently, uh, leading to dramatic protests in many, many uh, places across the continent. And uh, certainly in Atlanta, where uh, a number of people were arrested. I I believe six was the last number I heard, I'm not sure, four of whom were being held without any bond whatsoever, two of whom were offered bond of $350,000. The charges are expected to be, and have already been, for forest defenders, terrorism. Why is defending a forest terrorism? That is in some sense our question for today. I'm not sure we'll get to the bottom of it, but we will have a chance to talk about what's going on there, how we might be able to think about it better, and how we might be able to support the Forest Defenders, with our guest Kay, who's going to be calling in in about ten minutes. But I wanted to pass things over to the Local Bag for their sort of thoughts and lead-in and what they want to offer as we start to think about these issues.
1: Right. So I think um, I think Virgil summarized it really very clearly and succinctly. Um, also going into a lot of the. Um, the very disturbing things that have come out of um, the defend the Atlanta forest uh, occupation of this land. Um, so for I'm I wasn't from I'm I wasn't and I'm currently not familiar with the um, with the Georgia um, topography um, until, you know, I heard about I heard about what was going on there. in, you know, with the Atlanta forest defenders and um, the development of the surrounding area in DeKalb County. Um, So currently, and our guest actually corrected me on this, um, it is advertised that only 85 acres of forest are are supposedly going to be leveled and developed on. Um, But in actuality, there are 380 acres leased to the Atlanta Police Foundation. And not only is that land leased to them, there is currently no binding agreement to not develop all 380 acres of that land. Um, so the Atlanta Police Foundation's site plans have already grown to include around 100 acres of land and development, um, and it is not expected to stay that low. It's, um, I mean, you know, this is a, a, mass, a massive, multi-billion dollar development project. Um, so if 380 acres of land are leased to the Atlanta Police Foundation, there is no, um, there is really no legal, there's no legal obligation to stop them from developing um, all of that land, which, as Virgil mentioned, um First belonged to the Muscogee people, um, and then, you know, multiple plantations uh, made their home in that um, on that same land um, after pushing out the Muscogee people, and um, so not only multiple plantations, but also the old Atlanta prison farm um, used to be located there. So this really highlights the seemingly transferable use of the land um, from slavery into the for-profit prison labor um and that is just um just wanted to bring some light into the long history of uh what has gone on in that specific plot of land um there is a lot of history in the land and um you know corporations can give as many land acknowledgements as they want but um when they continue to perpetuate that um very harmful history um especially towards the black community towards the um indigenous communities of that area um they just you know you know, their words are nothing and they always will be nothing. Um, you know, some of the corporations that are funding this project in that area include like Bank of America, which is like a nationwide chain and international chain. Um, and there have just been, there were a lot of protests following um, Tortiguita's mor- murder. And, um, you know, there have been reports of like Bank of America's like getting rocks thrown in their windows. Um, And stuff like that but again the damage of property is never ever equal to um is never equal to a life and um it really it brings me great sadness to have to be talking about all of these things um especially the murder of a beloved comrade um you know even as someone who didn't know them like it's just you know i can't even imagine the the pain that those who did know them are feeling right now and our hearts go out to you right now um But yeah, I think that was all that I wanted to lead in with. Um, And also like the, as Virgil mentioned, the um, environmental significance of this land. Um, I mean, the people defending this aren't just like white anarchists in the woods. Like it's a very, it's like, it's a very wide coalition of people um, ranging from like ranging from children to teachers to community members. I mean, 80% of Atlanteans like didn't are against like the development of this project are against like the development of cop city. Um, So this is like a, you know, whatever demographic 80% of Atlanta like covers, those people are the ones that are out in um, defending the forest and defending the land. Um, And uh, they are in coalition and, uh, you know, according to other interviews, they have a very strong, um, very strong alliances with the local indigenous community. Um, And, you know, White ar- white anarchists are just using their, um, their racial privilege in order to defend this land, um, that sometimes is not, you know, it's not able to be done by others who have more, um, who just, uh, have more risk, I guess, when coming in contact with the police. I don't know if I phrased that correctly, but, um, yeah, and also the environmental significance of this land, um, like it protects the neighbor, the surrounding neighborhoods from not only wildfires but it protects them from floods, um. I mean, you know, given the rains that we've all had in the Sacramento area recently and in just in uh, California in general, um, a lot of the flooding that we've that we've experienced is just a result of overdevelopment of land. And especially in Sacramento, just like the complete unawareness of um, of the developers of that land on native species and what those native species do to anchor the soil in the land and to, you know, prevent it from drought and everything like that. So um, yeah. So we have seen the effects of um, we've seen the effects of destroying native species in our area. Um, and that same thing is going to happen over there if this development project um, continues. And also, it's basically like they're, they're basically building a mock city where police can practice urbanized military tactics um, uh, that to implement into their cities. I mean, this is over, I think the de- you know proposed plan is over like twice to three times as large as like the current LAPD training facility. Um, but these militarized training tactics are riot tactics. Like this is another large multi-billion-dollar development project that is very um, that is very anti-revolutionary. Um, it is very anti. Like you know, if you stand up against anything that you believe in, anything that you say that the government has to do with, you know, they. Are going to be training with these extremely militarized tactics um, that include like weapons, um, you know, chemical ma- chemical warfare, and all of the above, um, in order to keep those under control.
0: Yeah, so I want to pick up on uh, two of the many really important things in in uh, locals rundown of of some of the things that are going on there. And one is the question of property damage, and the other is exactly that last question of building a city to train in. So property damage is a funny thing. It's going to be significant ongoingly for this show, in part because here at Davis, not too long ago, there was an attempted event, a, a, a sort of neo-fascist speaker from the ethno-nationalist organization Turning Point USA, an, an identified as a hate organization, and that event got shut down, rightly so. Uh, and in, in, in the shutting down process... Uh, allegedly, a window or two got damaged. The chancellor of UC Davis then had to make one of his uh, recorded uh, addresses explaining that he was opposed to hate speech, but we had to be fine with hate speech. And moreover, it was more important to protect hate speech than it was to stop it. And we had to protect, in protecting hate speech, we also had to protect windows. These two things were, ex- uh, he, he mentioned doors too, so maybe there was door damage, but. Of course, it's the windows that get all the play, right? Like, oh, smashy, smashy! They went and smashed windows, and so our chancellor's let us know it's extremely important to defend windows. He's a right. he's a window defender, and uh, which is y- you know something. And it's important to think about whether or not that damage is violence. Although it shouldn't take much thought. One of the fun things you can do if you're online and really need to kill a few seconds is Google. Las Vegas casino demolition. Periodically, they demolish these big casinos in Las Vegas, and they really demolish the crap out of them. And the videos are quite amazing of watching the you know the the, the detonations go off, the planted charges, and they collapse. They all fall down, all the b- bricks, all the windows, and no one thinks it's property damage. When they knocked down the Berlin Wall, which is a major substantial wall in downtown in a major world city, no one thought it was property damage. It's no one no one thought it was violence. It's clear that this category of property damage and violence has nothing to do with the actual activity of knocking down a wall, of breaking a window, of destroying a building. It only suddenly becomes violence if someone with a lot of power claims ownership over it and claims they're being damaged in their ownership power by its destruction. That's all property damage is, is an insult to ownership. When they call it violence, they mean that an insult to ownership is violence. This idea alone should horrify every person with an ethical core. The idea that we equate violence with an insult to ownership as a privilege. So I want to touch on that when we think about the various claims around property damage or viol- property violence and what that might have to do with terrorism. The other thing I want to just do is, is expand a little bit on a crucial point that Local Bag made about why it's so important that the cops need to build a whole fake city that they can train in. First of all, why do police need to expand at all? Even if you believed the idea, which I did not, that police budgets should be based on levels of crime. I, I actually, I'm not sure that's right because I think we're fucked messed up in how we handle crime uh, um, and what we, na- what we name as crime. But let's say we believe that kind of bourgeois idea that police budget should be based on level of crime. Since 1992, violent crime is decreased by more than a half. Property crime has increased by more than two-thirds. If you believed that police budgeting should be based on crime, imagine you were a cop and you're like, we need budgets because of crime. You would have to say, our budget should be half of what it was at the most, and maybe a third of what it was in 1992 dollars. I don't hear police saying that. Instead, I hear them saying, despite the ongoing decrease in violent and property crime. I hear them saying, We need 300 acres to build a city to practice what we do. Now, why do they need that? Well, because cops just need everything. But clearly they need it because of things like Ferguson and Baltimore Mm -hmm. and Charlotte and the George Floyd uprising that happened everywhere. They understand that one of the forms that uh, emancipation struggles, freedom struggles, liberty struggles are going to take is urban uprisings. They recognize that and they feel a great fear and a great need to prepare themselves for that. And we see that fear and that terror and that response, that reaction, in this need to expand against all reason. Or maybe they're right to be afraid. With that, let's kick it to some music and then we'll be back with our visitor, Kay.
2: Say
3: Are you interested in sponsoring
1: this or any other hour of KDBs programming? If you or your business would like to know more about sponsoring KDBs programming, you can contact KDBs underwriting at
3: gmail.com.
1: All right, welcome back to KDBs 90.3 FM live from Davis, California. This is local bag and you're listening to No Please Radio. Um, We've been on since 4.30 and we'll be here until 6 p.m. uh, Pacific Standard Time. Um, Just wanted to quickly introduce our guest. Our guest is Kay. They are a resident of Gresham Park in uh, Georgia, which is one of the neighborhoods surrounding the forest. Um, They're a member of the Wulani Coalition, which is a group of local parents, abolitionists, educators, environmental activists that have been focused on being connected with the Muscogee folks in Oklahoma, but also supporting children's participation and leadership through a network of local preschools. Uh, Kay, thank you so much for being here with us today. Can you hear us okay? Yes, thanks for having me. Okay, awesome. Uh, And Virgil, did you want to get started?
0: Yeah, sure. So again, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know things must be pretty hectic down there. Recent events have been very dramatic, and I imagine we'll get to them, but I don't want to sort of leap right ahead to the present and the events that have made headlines uh, um, in extraordinary and tragic ways recently. I'd rather go back in time a little bit. I tried to give a sort of lead-in for our audience, but of course I'm at quite a distance. You're down there, you're in it, and I I, I would be very grateful if you could sort of give us a sense of how this struggle emerged in the first place and how you got involved in it that sends us moving toward the, the present day.
4: Sure, sure. So in the spring of 2021, um, the Atlanta Police Foundation and the City of Atlanta tried to very quietly announce plans to build what the movement refers to as Cop City, which is essentially a large police training facility. Um, and I think you already mentioned that would include, for instance, a mock city um, that looks a lot like any American city. It would have a barber shop, um, a post office, a grocery store, a nightclub, made to look like just any old American city. Um, but also a helicopter landing pad, a place to practice um, like police uh, chases and vehicles, um, bomb detonation, shooting range. And when they quietly announced these plans, they made it fairly clear that the point of building this facility at this time was to boost police morale, right? And this is coming in the aftermath of the 2020 uprising for George Floyd, but also locally, we kind of had a second bump in the movement in Atlanta when the police um, brutally murdered Rayshard Brooks, a black man in South Atlanta. So they kind of quietly announced those plans, but... Unfortunate for them, people were paying attention to what happens in our city and got wind of those plans uh, and began really immediately to organize against this police training facility because, like you said, this is going to be two to three times larger than LAPD's training facility, much larger than NYPD's training facility, which, of course, has the largest police force in America. Um, for what's a pretty small police force in Atlanta, the actual city of Atlanta is not that large. The metro area is, but the city itself is not that large. And so we said, why are they possibly building this? Yes, to ble- boost police morale, as they said, um, but also, like you said, to, to put down protests and upraisings, to practice putting down protests more effectively effectively. Um, and so once people got word, people started organizing, and at the same time, there was already folks who were organizing around protecting this forest from destruction because of a, a private real estate developer who also owned a Hollywood studio had uh, made laid claim by trading with the county to another section of this forest that's immediately connected to the land that the city of Atlanta was attempting to build um, this police facility on. And so... Altogether, that's why when folks here defend the forest, that's kind of a broad uh, banner for the movement that's trying to protect these hundreds and hundreds of acres of forest right outside the city limits. Um, and, yes, the movement's going going since then. I'm not sure if you want more history of that land itself.
0: Uh, I, we might come to that, but I really appreciate that uh, s- sort of an initial sense of how it got going, which I think will ring familiar in various ways, the attempts to do these quietly via sort of a subterfuge, hope no one notices, hope that the response doesn't happen. But I think it's an important context for understanding, among other things, the murder of Tortugita, one of your your uh, comrades there as, p- as part of the struggle, and who um, I don't think this show will be at all the most moving memorial, but I do want this show to be part of a way to remember Tortugita and to remember people who have been lost in this struggle. So I I, want to sort of give you an opportunity to to maybe talk a little bit about how we get from the simple and clear desire to stop a massive um, development of police capacity for violence that also destroys vital, uh, crucial land and displaces humans, how we get from that to what gets called in the Guardian assassinated in cold blood, the murder of an activist by the police. Do you have a sense of, of how we get from that beginning to, to that outcome?
4: Yeah, certainly. No, you know, only a few months into the movement beginning, heavy police repression began. Um, this movement is very large and us? very broad. There's people all over the metro Atlanta area that, have called in the city council initially trying to oppose the land lease to the police foundation have called their um, DeKalb County representatives to try to oppose the building of, of the facility have organized that their schools, workplaces, neighborhoods have come out to rallies and protests. Okay? And then there's also been as of the fall of 2021, an ongoing occupation in the forest of folks who have set up it's a very common land defense tactic um, setting up tree sits in the forest to physically prevent the destruction of trees. And the police began at some point after that occupation was established to conduct periodic raids in the forest, go in with multiple police agencies. They have a joint task force that's headed up by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the kind of state affiliate of the FBI that includes the Atlanta police, the county police, GBI, FBI, Homeland Security, Georgia State Patrol, and they began to conduct these raids and use chemical weapons on people engaged in civil disobedience by firing pepper balls and tear gas into the trees as people are engaged in those tree sits, which, as you can imagine, is extremely dangerous, right, because people can fall to their deaths. They also attempted to extract tree sitters from trees by cutting off limbs or cutting the climb lines of tree sitters. Right. And at the same time, the police and the local corporate media began to really paint the movement as this kind of small, isolated, hyper-militant movement that had absolutely no community base. right? And as you said in the introduction, I am a neighbor. Many, many people in this movement live, work, and play in the neighborhoods surrounding the forest, in South Atlanta, and Metro Atlanta. Right? So they were attempting to kind of divide the movement and go after um, the folks who were putting their bodies on the line to defend the forest. Um, and so that repression really ramped up in December. In December, only about two weeks before uh, Christmas and the December holidays, they, this agent or this like, task force of multiple police agencies went in, raided, used chemical weapons, and ended up arresting five people in the forest. Um, excuse me, six people in the forest and charging them with domestic terrorism. Now, keep in mind, they're not being charged with any particular acts of even property destruction or bodily harm. They're being charged with trespassing and domestic terrorism. And basically what they're doing is they're using this state law from 2017, which is extremely broad and wide sweeping, so much so that at the time that Georgia legislatures attempted to pass the law, civil rights attorneys said, whoa, you can't do this. This is just way too broad, and you're clearly going to use it against movements. They passed it anyway, um, and so they're using that to try to criminalize people that are engaged in civil disobedience, essentially. So that was a very violent raid and um, just a huge overreach by the state. And unfortunately, last Wednesday, Wednesday, they conducted a second raid. And same deal, five, six police agencies raided the forest. and 9 a.m., they shot and killed what we're calling a political assassination, an activist named Tortuguita, who is of indigenous ancestry from now called Venezuela, um, and murdered this person in cold blood, as the Guardian rightfully called it. They continued, after killing Tortuguita, to raid the forest, to hunt down um, tree sitters and occupiers, to use chemical weapons on them, and arrested seven additional people, also charging them with domestic terrorism. In the aftermath of that assassination, people in Atlanta and dozens and dozens of cities across the U.S. and the world have held vigils to memorialize tort. And on Saturday, there was a protest in downtown Atlanta that ended in the police coming in, brutalizing protesters, grabbing whoever they could, and charging seven—sorry, six—additional people with domestic terrorism. So at this point, we have 18 people who are charged with domestic terrorism under this extremely broad sweeping bill. Like you said, two of the folks that were arrested on Saturday have bails for 350 plus thousands dollars. Um, and then four people have been denied bond, and those two that have been released or will be released, if you know, assuming that the $350,000 for each arrestee um, can be posted for their bond, will be on house arrest. So just really overreaching with the repression. Just pretty much, I would say at this point, the police are pretty out of control. Um, and like you said, they went so far as actually um, kill a protester engaged in civil disobedience
0: yeah it's hard to hear and i i appreciate you yeah. you sh- sharing that with us and and i know that here at, at no police radio our, our um our thoughts go out to to everyone who's down there um i, I, I guess this is difficult i guess let, let's let's take a minute to collect ourselves uh, we'll play a song we can do that we're a radio station mm-hmm. and we'll come back with some more discussion with Kay about stop cop city and the question of terrorism
3: You've heard about the opiate crisis. Opiates are powerful, pain-reducing medications prescribed by doctors, but they can also be very dangerous. In fact, most overdose deaths involve opiates. So what can you do? A lot. Trouble with opiates often start at home with unused medications in your cabinets or drawers. Opiates could be in pill bottles, syrups, or even prescription patches. Whatever they look like, dispose of unused opiate medications safely before they hurt your family. Find out how to remove the risk at FDA.gov slash drug disposal.
1: all right now that we've had a little time to collect ourselves um just a quick back wrap on what music has been played so far on the show um what you just heard was the muse by the hallucination um off of the album we are the Hallucci Nation," and um the artists of this song the, ar- the artists behind um, the song and this album are of indigenous descent um and before that was lost horizon by todd Rundgren. Um, and at the top of the hour was Badfinger. Or sorry, was Dear Angie by Badfinger. Um, just a quick back wrap on the music. And um, Kay, can you hear us? Okay, still. Yes. Okay. Awesome.
0: Yeah. So I wanna, I wanna, um, sort of move to this question of terrorism and domestic terrorism, and, and try and think about it a, a little bit as a, as a weapon of the state. Um, of course the. The the concept has existed for a long time. If you go on Wikipedia and look up domestic terrorism, you're going to discover all kinds of stuff, including like John Brown's uh, raid, among uh, among other things, um, but also things like Timothy McVeigh blowing up the government building in Oklahoma and and, and so on. Uh, it's really quite recently that it has uh, sort of m- morphed, expanded, but but even as expanding, sort of fixing its focus or its stare on a particular thing. And it's that that I want to sort of talk about for the next couple of minutes, if, 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 if we can tr- try and think it through. So Kay mentioned that in 2017, uh, there was this new law that allowed for these domestic terrorism charges, and that really is right around the hinge. In 2016, for example, uh, in, a, in a quite well-known case, uh, two, two people, Jessica Reznicek and Ruby Montoya, Uh, you know, set a bulldozer and some construction equipment on fire. Uh, I say this because they uh, uh, stated themselves that they had done it at a a press conference um, at the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, as as part of the No Dapple Dapple, uh, protests. And they were both sentenced to uh, extraordinary extended sentences for this. And Jessica Resnick in particular was given a so-called terrorism enhancement. And that moment was not the first and certainly won't be the last, but was sort of a hinge or a pivot toward really focusing this domestic terrorism claim on ecological activism. Uh, It had been possible since the Patriot Act, uh, dating back to 2001, which made the damaging of critical infrastructure, so-called, into a a potentially terrorist act, and of course a lot of uh, ecological land defense, water defense, forest defense, by necessity interferes with the activity of, of infrastructure buildout that demolishes these forests, destroys these watersheds, um, removes people from land, and, and, and so on. So the, the confrontation, sort of a capital colonial infrastructure buildout and people trying to defend land, defend water, defend forests, has turned into an ongoing, dramatic, growing, extensive confrontation of which defend the Atlanta Forest is uh, currently one of the, one one of the really notable and rem- uh, remarkable examples, heroic examples, I think. Um, and what? But what we know is that means there's going to be more and more of these uh, terrorism charges against uh, uh, ecological protesters, and that's a powerful weapon for the state. and And I, I wonder, Kay, if you can tell us a little bit about how you think about this question of terrorism. Obviously, it's a ludicrous uh, um, carceral strategy designed to stop people from interfering with colonial capitalism. This much is straightforward. But I wonder what you make of this idea of being thought of as a terrorist and how that idea circulates through the world. And if you think about, you know, just civilians out there who are thinking, oh, yeah, those... People in Atlanta, they're terrorists. Like, what do you what do you make of that?
4: Yeah, I'm glad you asked because you know, in the last month, I've had a lot of conversations with parents and educators um, through the Weelani Coalition that is composed of parents and educators and local residents and abolitionists, and they've you know expressed how extremely insulting it is to hear the police and even corporate media. Um, judges in some of these cases talk about this land as this place, you know, who would bring their children there, is what they've said, this war zone. And from their perspective, it's a war zone because the police are there actively raiding it and violently attacking people and then calling them the terrorists, right? They say, We bring our children there. This is a public park, half of this land that we're on. And if you go out, forest you can't really you know property lines aren't clear it's, it's all one continuous forest um and so there's folks even these days when um the police have gone in and violently raided and evicted and even gone so far to kill somebody in the forest you know there is neighbors who are out using the forest for recreation as they do every single day for the last several several years Um, So I think a lot of local residents who use that land and who have interacted with or have relationships with some of the forest defenders know that it's nonsense and they won't buy it. But you're right that one of the effects that using these terms like terrorism has on the broader public is it's a real chilling effect. I've had people ask me. Can I still tweet at the mayor? Can I still tweet at city council? Or will I be labeled a domestic terrorist just for being associated with this broad label of the movement, Defend the Forest or Stop Cop City, you know? And that's just a huge infringement on people's ability to act in any kind of way. And so it's this attempt to just really scare people away. And like I said, paint this picture as if, you know, people in this movement are, you know, some menacing, nefarious types, when in reality, the folks have a really positive vision, everyone, of what they want to see with this land, what they want to see with land in general, with clean air and clean water. And, you know, a lot of people have expressed in and outside of the movement that this is such a clear example, that building Cop City is such a clear example of environmental racism and how environmental racism is not, it's not just about toxic pollutants in black and brown neighborhoods but also police violence, right? And so here's folks who are fighting against all these forms of environmental racism, recognizing that they're all connected, building this beautiful space. If you went out to the forest two months ago, you would come to land that just felt so free, where people had set up, for instance, people had built a cafe, which is essentially an outdoor kitchen with a stove and everything so that they could cook community meals. There's free grocery distributions that were happening every Wednesday night for months where people from the neighborhoods could come and get free groceries, um, could share a meal with people in the forest. There's been festivals, music festivals, concerts, um, overnight stays, children coming to take forest walks to visit the mother tree and bring her offerings there's been summits with Muskogee people from Oklahoma who have been in the process of what they conceive of as ongoing remigration, not meaning to permanently remigrate to their ancestral lands, but to continuously come to their ancestral lands and be in community with each other, be in community with black Atlantans who are facing the brunt of violence. And so it's just like kind of incredibly beautiful, positive vision and space to be in And they're labeling this using these extreme words like terrorism or extremist or calling it violent i mean it's so insidious and in particular when you think that at this point you know they're talking about property damage what about human life what about the land and water and air that we as humans and all other living creatures rely on for our very survival this is what people are attempting to defend and i think like you said, this is not the only struggle like this in the so-called U.S. or in the world, right? This is happening all over the world because people recognize that it's just we we can't afford to not defend the land and defend the water and the air and defend ourselves against these extreme forms of violence from the state and from the corporations, from racial capitalism, right?
1: Right thanks so much for elaborating on that. Um, and I think a lot of I really want to expand on a lot of the points that you touched there. Um, let's see what we have the time for. Um, but I did have a question. you talk about this collective community vision. um oftentimes um, when people hear revolution, when people hear um, when people hear like anarchism, when people hear like forest defense, when people hear like the stopping of further like further um let's see. For their colonial development um they get scared like they get fearful because um after the destruction of property like what comes after the destruction of property what comes after the destruction of these institutions that have been so ingrained um in like our in like our lived experiences um you know if we've lived for 20 years and we've all this is all we've known like what comes after this um so you talk about this collective vision um this vision of community and this vision of what um you have for the land and what the indigenous folks that um, what the indigenous folks like also have for the land. um, Could you elaborate on what this vision looks like? Um, It doesn't even have to be, this can also just be like, this can also just, you know, come from your own heart. Um, You know, what does the vision look like to you and what does it look like to the community from what you've seen? Yeah. I appreciate this question
4: because, you know, there's so many visions and they share a lot of commonality, but, One thing I want to hit on is that I think that this movement is so much broader than simply being an anarchist movement or an abolitionist movement. Of course, there's anarchists and communists and socialists and abolitionists, all who are very involved in supporting the movement. But there's also all kinds of other people who come to it because they believe in environmental justice or because they don't want to see the building of this police training facility in atlanta because they recognize what it will mean for increased police brutality throughout the city because they recognize that having police patrolling those neighborhoods coming in and out every single day will make undocumented people more vulnerable to police violence and to deportation you know Mm -hmm. there's just so many kinds of people and the vision i've been thinking about this week one of them as many as is one that comes from the children and some of these local preschools and some of the neighborhoods around the forest who have actually come up with a number of chants that the movement uses in protest and have led those chants. They will say, don't cut down the trees. It's not fair. Um, And it's, you know, they just have such a simple, but like, you know, not to be simple in a bad way, but just a beautiful way of thinking about the world and recognizing that like this is, these major corporations and this violent state that's attempting to move in and just tear down this beautiful land in order to enact violence. And, yeah, so I've been thinking kind of about their vision, what they've said that they want to see out there. And they've mentioned things like food for everyone, housing for everyone, you know, medicine for everyone, safety. One of the local preschools that's in the network, their children – noticed one day that there was unsheltered people who'd walk by in front of the preschool and they said, you know, what are they doing? So when they're just walking around, they don't really have a place to go. They said, are they hungry? And we feed them. And the preschool worked with the children to then, the adults at the preschool worked with the children to then build a community garden so that they could provide food for free for people in the neighborhood who didn't have access to food, you know. These are three, four, and Mm five-year-olds. And I think about this a lot because I think we can just learn so much from young children and how they think about the value of human life uh, and the value of the land. Um, And then, you know, there's environmental groups like the South river forest coalition who have for many years before cop city was even announced had built the South river forest vision plan. And in fact, the city of Atlanta in their charter maybe five years ago, I believe it was 2017, said that they were going to protect this entire forest from destruction. And it was actually a part of the ecological vision for the city to protect the ecological health of the region. Yet they've gone back on that plan, obviously. But the South River Forest Plan is still up. Anyone can go view it on online and see what they have for it, which is essentially leave this public land for public use and and recreation um, and to protect the tree canopy. So some of these things are as simple as just leave it alone, please. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't build this police training facility. Don't give the other part of the forest to a private real estate developer to make profit off of it and tear down our public park. And the forest has been like repairing itself for many years because and maybe we'll have time to get into it. But like you said, this was a prison farm up until the 90s, the 1990s that is, mm-hmm. which essentially continued enslaved labor on this land. People were incarcerated and thrown in this prison farm for crimes of poverty, for crimes of homelessness, you know, so-called crimes. Um, for public drunkenness, mm-hmm. whatever. And they'd be held for days and forced to work the land, sometimes weeks or months. And even black radical activists, such as activists in, in SNCC and the Atlanta Project were thrown into this prison farm. But since that farm is closed, the prison farm has closed down, the land has been repairing itself. The forest has been repairing itself. So some people have accidentally reported it as an old growth forest, but it's really a young forest still. And we wanna see it continue to repair itself. And another issue that's happening is that there's a creek, in Creek, that runs through this land that feeds the South River, which Muskogee folks call Weelani. And that creek has been polluted into by a waste treatment plant in the neighborhood for many, many years. And it's also being polluted because currently on the Cop City side of the land, the land where they're attempting to build Cop City, there is a police shooting facility where the Atlanta Police Department practices shooting at, I kid you not, a yellow school bus, a kid's school bus. And the lead from the bullets has been polluting in Trinsen Creek for many years. And so there was already ongoing issues with environmental injustice and pollution happening in these neighborhoods, which is part of why the South River Forest Plan was enacted or created in the first place. And that was created from a many, many community members and residents' input that filled out forms, called in, spoke with people who are envisioning that vision, um, and it was really creative their input. And so that's, you know, we'd be happy to see this. I I can't speak for everyone, but I would be happy to see many aspects of the South River Forest Vision enacted. Um, And then like you said, it is also can be much larger than that, right? People don't just want to see, okay, leave it public land and let's leave it alone. but we also want to see we're asking why is it that there's 90 million dollars, sixty from corporate donors and 30 million from the city of Atlanta budget taxpayer dollars that're going into this when that money could be going into keeping people in their homes when the city is facing rapid gentrification. Mm-hmm. Like getting people access to medicine and health care when the city just closed down the Atlanta Medical Center and is now making moves on Grady, which is our other major hospital. And, I mean, it's terrifying that in the city of Atlanta, they're closing down one of three hospitals and really one of two within the city limits right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And so we want to see this money be going to housing, health care, food. And instead, it's, of course, going to increase the police budget because, like y'all noted before, this is where they continuously all over the country, city governments are funneling more money to the police, even though the crime rate has decreased drastically. And like you said, too, we should really reconsider what we even consider crime in the first place, because for me, tearing down a forest that is already facing environmental pollution in a majority black neighborhood, a majority impoverished neighborhood that feels like a crime far more than a lot of things that they call crimes in the books, right? Right. Not preventing people with housing and gentrifying them out of their cities that they're born and raised in. That's a social harm right there. So mm-hmm. we want to see the actual social harms addressed and the forest, left alone.
1: Right. Thank you so much for elaborating on all of that. I think all of, I don't know, I'm feeling emotional right now. I'm feeling a lot of emotions, um, in response to your response um and especially the part about um enacting the children's vision for the forest um i mean the children are the future and they are going to be the future i feel like 20 year olds have already messed up pretty bad so like you know maybe we can just give it back to the children i think uh, you know we could start again um until we uh, finally get it right um but i think that was beautiful um it was beautifully put and it it's i don't know I feel like I had so much to say, but, you know, it's just all getting really scrambled in my head right now. Um, And you really touched on, like, what environmental racism has looked like and um, how gentrification um, has, you know, impacted the city of Atlanta. And, um, you know, closing down a hospital. I don't know. Like, I know Atlanta used to be 50 percent black. um, And I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, like the development of, you know, for example, like Tyler Perry's movie studio um, has just like uh, further gentrified, um, neighborhoods in Atlanta and, um, has just, you know, not created, you know, not created, um, let's see, just like not created more jobs for people, but rather like it has just like, it's just like more outsourced labor from larger metropolitan areas like Los Angeles and New York city. Um, but, um, it's making Atlanta like no longer a, like a black majority city. And, um, Mm -hmm just like the you know it's it's dystopian um like closing down one of three hospitals like that is extreme or one of four hospitals like one of two in the atlanta city in the atlanta like city limits like that is extremely dystopian um i Mm -hmm. mean here in davis we have um you know this is like a really it's a really small city like we have like sutter davis hospital and then like 20 minutes away we have you know we have another we have more hospitals in sacramento so like it's extremely dystopian but thank you for sharing Mm -hmm.
4: And if I can touch on something you said, you know about connecting the closure of the hospital with ongoing gentrification. You know, for many in the movement, it's really about all of this. It's all connected. When we think about why are they building Hop City, why here, why now, it's because of the larger vision that the corporate and political elite have for this region and have for this city. Which, like you said, this used to be a majority Black city, and increasingly it's not. And that's because working class and poor people are being priced out because the vision that the elite have for the city is is for a playground, for them and their Mm -hmm. friends, for the elite to have these movie studios and these elite retail establishments and entertainment districts. And why do they need increased policing? Yes, to put down protests, but also to repress everyday folks going about their business and keeping certain kinds of bodies out of certain kinds of areas, right, to continue corporate profits flowing. And so we know, for instance, that some of the major backers of this project are folks who live in the neighborhood of Buckhead. Buckhead is the historically white, wealthy suburb of Atlanta, neighborhood of Atlanta, where it's like basically the geographical location for the elite, right? And they're the ones that have come out in support of this project, as well as the police, of course, and a few firefighters. But other than that, back last in in the fall of 2021, when people of Atlanta were calling into city council to oppose it, like you said, it was over 70 percent of people are opposing this. The only people supporting it is Buckhead Residents, which residents is a nice euphemism because these are also folks who, who run the corporations, who work for real estate, who work for the movie industry, right, and not as workers, but as running that stuff, as owning the businesses, um, hoarding the money, right, um, and also govern, sometimes quietly, secretly, what happens all throughout the city of Atlanta. So it's a small neighborhood, a small group of elite who have way outsourced say in um, what's happening throughout the city of Atlanta and throughout metro Atlanta, really. Because, like I said, this forest is not even in the city of Atlanta. And so we don't even have, as neighbors living in the neighbors or the neighborhoods around the forest, <coughs> we don't actually have any input into what is happening because we are not city of Atlanta residents. We don't have city council members to represent us. Not that they, not that I trust that they would in any kind of way, because when, you know, city of Atlanta residents did say they were against it, city council didn't listen anyway, Mm -hmm. but even so we don't even have any way to have public input.
2: Right.
0: I think that's a really useful description of, of one of the ways that policing works more and more, right? As we see this sort of intensifying, Wealth polarization in these cities and, you know, I'm from the Bay Area and San Francisco. There's there's a pretty dramatic example. On the one hand, you have this class of super wealthy elites that you've mentioned um, who who uh, want the amenities of the of the city and of urban life. And that means that they, in some sense, you know, need and are willing to pay for, although never pay very much for service workers. Right. And this is like, in some sense, a great problem. You have these wealthy elites who do not want poor people in their neighborhoods but need poor people in their neighborhoods to be their service workers or need need poor people within reach to do that service labor whether it's you know w- you know doing DoorDash dash or d- you know delivering pizza or you know whatever you know whatever it is and that contradiction between both wanting to get rid of and needing to preserve this impoverished underclass of service workers presents a dynamic that requires, from the perspective of the elites, intensified policing, right? Because the police then have to do the job of making sure the service workers just do their service work in service of the, of the ultra-wealthy and do nothing else And GTFO as soon as they're done delivering the DoorDash. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that dynamic is deadly. It's a deadly dynamic. I want to ask a, a little question. So I want to sort of go back to the children's vision right, of food for everyone, and to that, the temporary instance that you mentioned, Kay, about that cafe, I'm really interested in that cafe, often when we think about these political insurgencies like Defend the Atlanta Forest, we think of their militant aspect, right? They're like, oh, I'm, I'm blockading, I'm blocking, I'm I'm, you know, there's images from Standing Rock of people like, you, you know, um, building a barricade in front of the pipeline and stopping it from passing and it's very confrontational, it's very uh, militant. And then we have this other aspect that always has to be present, right? Which is the care work that keeps people going, that allows people to stay there, that allows them to be there day after day, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which includes like a cafe is a great example, right? Or just like a central kitchen where people work, but also all the other ways that we care for each other and keep each other functional and going and alive and humane. And often we set those things in sort of opposition, like, well, why are you so militant when you, like, you should be involved in, 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 like, care work? Or care work will never get anything done. You have to be, and I think, you know, in your description of, of all the things that are happening there in this evolving vision, it makes it really clear that those two things, sort of confrontational militancy and, and mutual aid and care work, always have to go together, that they're not opposed, that they're part of a larger unified struggle. That's just sort of my my sense of things. Does that... Does that strike a chord with you? What's your sense of the dynamic between sort of militancy and care in your community down there?
2: Yeah.
4: And I'll say it's many, many communities. But but overall, you know, I think you're right. It's that if you go out of the forest, like I said, you're going to find, you would have found before Ryan Millsap, this private real estate developer coordinated with the GBI and the police force to destroy the public park and all of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before that, you would have found, yeah, this community cafe. You would have found people in the forest doing yoga, doing conflict resolution, um, dancing together, singing together, um, hauling water, right? Because one thing that you need in a forest like that when there's no running waters is clean, fresh water. So making sure there's constant water stores so people can spend time in the forest. Um, there was a whole... One day I stumbled upon, I didn't even know it had been built, but a whole outdoor restroom that was so impressive. I couldn't believe that people had seemingly constructed this overnight, but just like the ingenuity of folks and the like commitment to just building out this beautiful space to encourage ongoing public use, you know, because there was no public bathroom in that forest or in that park prior to the occupation. There was no uh, even, you know, stove for people to cook or running water for people to drink. And so it's like they improved this public park drastically by building out these things, you know, and the care work, absolutely a part of it. And both the, the, you know, what people sometimes think of as militancy or, you know, kind of direct action stuff and the care work is always intertwined and it's happening in the forest and in all these neighborhoods outside of the forest where people live and work. And all over the country, really, right? Like All over the so-called U.S., where people are, I know right now, even if they didn't know Tortugita, they're mourning the loss of this person, right? And caring for each other in cities all around. And I think many of us in and outside the city are staying in contact, checking on each other. How are you? Are you taking care of yourself this week? Because it's just such a horrible tragedy that so many people are mourning, knowing both that This could have been any one of us, anyone that stands up and protests against injustice and that it's just such a horrible, horrible tragedy and a dangerous precedent that the Atlanta police and GBI and Homeland Security have set here in the city of Atlanta. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The care care work is part and parcel with all of the rest of it. And it's an abolitionist vision, right, that's being enacted daily in the forest. I talked about earlier how. The forest has been repairing itself, and part of that work is the human work that's happening in the forest. Mm-hmm. It's like, we are repaired through being there, being in community with each other, visioning what we want to see with this land and with our communities, and bringing those visions out into the surrounding neighborhoods and talking to our neighbors about that, bringing our neighbors back into the forest, right? And it's kind of a continuum of this direct action and protests and protests led by children, and people doing direct actions in other cities, targeting some of the subcontractors that are attempting to build Cop City, going after some of um, the corporations that are funding the Atlanta Police Foundation, pressuring city council. And it's kind of all connected, part of this much broader movement where people are taking care of each other and also making sure to continue to put this pressure, especially now because it's like I, I am tired this week. Mm-hmm. I think I'm beginning to lose my voice because I'm so tired and I'm sad and I'm angry. But I think I, like so many other people, are resolved because we know that Tortuguita was an abolitionist, was an environmental activist, had a bold vision for what they wanted to see in the world. And now we feel like to honor their memory, we have to continue fighting. We have to see the end of this. and never, never should have been the case that this struggle, that the Atlanta police and the GBI and Homeland Security took somebody's life. But what we know is it's because we're winning that they've come down so violently against the movement. And so we're going to continue to fight.
0: Okay. We really thank you for spending time with us in a, in a period that I know is difficult, both because there's so much for you to do and because you're mourning a, a comrade. As a last question, question I just want to ask what people might be able to do to support the struggle I've already mentioned that people can go to the website defendtheatlantaforest.org. that's defend you can hit the solidarity tab uh, where there's various ways to be in solidarity but Kay if you have other thoughts about ways that people can support defend the Atlanta Forest uh, support uh, the, the ways to stop Cop City be in solidarity with this movement and with those communities now is a great time to let us all know we're grateful for that.
4: Yeah. So one one need right now is that Portuguita's family, um, their mother in particular, is trying to get to the United States to fight for justice for their child. So if um, folks want to donate to the fund for the family, the memorial fund, I don't have that link handy, but if you do an Internet search for Portuguita, Um, You will easily find that. Another thing is that um, a local group, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, is a group that defends protesters. At this point, there's been over 60 arrests around the movement. And these two people who have been given that $350,000 bail, obviously that's a lot of money. um, And there's others who will stay in jail Um, through the trial, unfortunately, because they've been denied bonds, so there will be ongoing support work for them. So people can go to atlsolidarity.org if they want to help um, support the Solidarity Fund through financial donations or um, continuing to stay abreast of the developments with the rescues who are in or out and, and provide care work for those folks. That's always, always welcome. Very necessary for any movement to have that strong movement defense. Um, including, I'm sure you'll see posts about letter writing, um, reaching out to folks who are inside and giving your support. So those are two main asks right now for people outside of Atlanta. Um, of course, people are always welcome to come here, learn from the struggle, connect with folks who are here on the ground, um, and and put in you know some hours to work. One of the needs always is for folks to be willing to talk to more neighbors, um, and explain to them what's going on and see how we can get them more involved Uh, because, like I said, there's many neighbors, but there's always more people. Um, And then there's also calls for folks to act in solidarity in their own cities, whether that's, you know, um, identifying the Atlanta Police Foundation donors or identifying the contractors and subcontractors who are attempting to build Cop City, working with the Atlanta Police Foundation. Um, There's always... Um, calls for people to put pressure on those donors and those contractors wherever they are. There's been people doing vigils in cities across the U.S., um, so vigils are always welcome, of course. And also for, you know, everyone's own sakes to take time to mourn this and and feel this death. Um, And, yeah, I think those right now are kind of the main asks for folks.
0: We really appreciate that. Uh, We can't make any promises because of course we have no idea who's part of UC Davis cops off campus, but we believe it's entirely possible that links to all those various resources will show up on the UC Davis cops off campus Twitter and Instagram fairly shortly you can find them there. okay, I want to thank you once again for sitting with us in this difficult time and we're grateful for that and um, we send our best to you and we wish you strength and solidarity and um, hope you'll hope you'll pass it along to everyone who you see. Um, again, we appreciate it so much. You take care.
4: Thank you both. and thanks to the listeners.
1: Have a good one. All right. With that comes the conclusion of our interview. Um, we're gonna jump to an outro song. Um, usually at the end of, <clears throat> usually at the end of No Police Radio, here um, we do a little segment called Bad Cop Good Project. Um, I think the interview highlighted um, highlighted a bad cop, um, highlighted many bad cops, and um, it also highlighted a good project, which is um, the Atlanta the For- Atlanta Forest Defenders. So I think that interview um, was also part of our last segment to close out today's show. Uh, feel free to check out the Cops Off Campus Instagram afterwards, uh, where we believe there will be links to all of, the, um, all of the resources that people can contribute if they're at capacity to do so. Um, it is U- uh, UCD underscore COC. And if you have any questions related to abolition or any of the topics discussed on air this quarter and last quarter and in the future, you can submit them via Instagram direct message or email us at UC Davis dot coc at gmail.com um when i say us i don't mean uh the folks here on the in the radio i just mean cops off campus in general um we have a stacked lineup of special guests coming for y'all this quarter we're excited to expand on the nuanced discussions on abolition um on the abolition of all oppressive systems and as always thank you to our listeners and kdbs supporters you can continue to tune in via 90.3 FM or listen on KDVS.org. Until next time, stop Cop City, tortiguita Vive, and fire the bosses, free the land.
0: Got nothing to add to that. Thank you.
1: All right. We'll just end with a quick song. Um, Rhythm by A Tribe Called Quest.
3: It's a new decade. The native tongues are about to proceed with the usual lingo. The usual rhythm. Devoted to the arts are moving, butts. The rhythm's happening, and it's moving up. The chopper's been on hold for much too long. Don't fear the rhythm because the straw on the corners. Brothers bop their heads from the high tops. The naughty I'm a Nubian, y'all, look what we did. Took the crust away from the third island. Now it's kind of open, lost to see the sight. Rhythms of the tribe, but just passed out right. Night after night. Day after day, questing for the rhythms of the native tongue way. Rhythm is the key as we open up the door. Things a beat boy has never seen before. Polyrhythmatic with a big fat boom. You have an orgasm as you start to consume the ghetto beat with a ghetto point. Yeah, it's from the heart, cause it's from the home. Jeroboam, fight, fali Shaheed. Call me Koala, got what you need. You're a disc jock, then jock this. Rhythms can't lose, rhythms can't miss. If you feel uptight and you need to freak, it'll be all right once we drop this beat.